The first value is intellectual honesty. The first value. Uh, you will always say what you think. And then the second rule is playing politics in the first degree will get you fired on the spot. And even later, when I was working back in big corporate America and recruiting a manager to work for me, I'd say, if you play politics in the first degree, I will fire your ass. And uh, what do you mean by that? I go, well, you know, make anybody try to look bad. You try to withhold information that the organization needs. You misattribute who came up with an idea. Any of these things, I will fire you. I have references, right? And I said, on the other hand, if you steal money out of the petty cash drawer, I'll probably give you a second chance, particularly if you're going to use it for something worthwhile, like go out and get drunk or something, right? So I made a war on politics. And intellectual honesty as the prime value, my two foundation stones for my entrepreneurial career. Greetings, future fossils, and welcome back to the podcast that explores our place in time for episode 181. This is your host, Michael Garfield, about to take you on a romp into the undeveloped wilderness around one of the more interesting and honestly confusing, promising, but challenging and controversial subcultural topics on my radar these days, by which I mean Game B, which is intentionally nebulously defined as the alternative to the default standard in our modern society, which is game A, a game of competition for scarce financial resources in an ecocidal, endless growth paradigm. Some of you might remember back in episode 51 when I had Daniel Schmachtenberger of the Neurohacker Collective on the show to explain the problem of game A and lead us right up to the doorstep of game B thinking. And those of you who listen to the show regularly know that embracing a more complex, multivalent understanding of what matters in this world and enacting it through both our individual behavior and social contracts is a constant discussion on future fossils. So it is with great pleasure that for this episode, I get long-awaited guest Jim Rutt on the show. Jim is quite a character, co-founder of the Game B Conversation with Jordan Hall. Jim's life is one fascinating story after another, starting with his childhood in a pack of troublemaking scamps in the woods around the D.C. Beltway and following his meteoric success riding the dragon of the personal computing revolution through one corporation after another. Jim has his own show, The Jim Rutt Show, which I consider a sister program to both Future Fossils and the other podcast I host, Complexity. He and I were both recently indicted, if you will, in Joe Lightfoot's taxonomy of what he calls the liminal web, a loose constellation of sense makers and system poets alongside fellow friends of Future Fossils, Tyson Yunkaporta, Jeremy Johnson, Nora Bateson, and many others. But for this episode, I really wanted to focus on the pre-history and post-history of Game B, 
the contingencies of Jim's biography that shaped his personal philosophy, the way that he engages in life and in his organizational work, and then ultimately the way that they have shaped the discourse around this potent idea with all of its promise and its problems, and how he understands the world into which the Game B conversation might be leading us in our era of collapse and transformation and on through to the other side. I just want to say here that with Game B, as with many things, I find myself ambivalent. And this conversation I found to be full of challenging and difficult ideas that left me not knowing really what I think about all of this. At different times in this conversation, I hear myself and Jim, and I think, my God, are we prophets or are we fools? But by the end of it, I was left with a much deeper appreciation for him and for this entire Game Beat discussion, and with a lot of hope that listeners in and adjacent to the Future Fossils community will be able to take this bath bomb of a discussion and in its froth find something of value, something that can be explored in greater depth. I deeply look forward to seeing what discussion this engenders in the Future Fossils Facebook group and Discord server, which are both available to members of the Patreon community, as well as, of course, on my public-facing Twitter account. And now seems like the right time to thank everybody who has been supporting this show and all of the community management work that I've been volunteering over the years, all the time it takes to edit this program, including the 240-some extant Future Fossils patrons, as well as new patrons, Nicole Creedler, Sam Senega, Pamela Shapiro, and Andrew Gnan. If you too would like access to our communities, as well as patron-exclusive episodes, new art, new music, and all of the other creative work that I cannot just squeeze into this one show, then please visit me and help me keep this listener-supported program afloat at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Also, I highly recommend that you check the show notes there for this episode because we list such an epic bibliography of historical and current luminaries, excellent reading and listening, and other inspiring media that will keep you busy for quite a long time pursuing every strange rabbit trail that we follow in this conversation. If this is your first time listening to Future Fossils, Thank you for tuning in. I hope that you will subscribe and review this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And now buckle up for two very intense hours with the delightfully provocative and painfully interesting Jim Rutt. One last invitation to go directly to the show notes for a link to participate in a unique and interesting airdrop by my friends at Idea Market who are launching a prediction market-based reputation system on Web3. Those of you who follow me closely will remember that I appeared on their podcast last year with a bevy of my own skeptical questions about the platform, and I was very pleased with their response. I think this is a unique and interesting project, and they're airdropping the equivalent of $850 of tokens 
to each of the first hundred of my listeners and community members that uh, sign up for this experiment. So, an opportunity to get your skin in the game with a bottom-up social epistemological game B laboratory in the wild, as it were. Having said that, enjoy, and thanks for listening. Howdy. Howdy, Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well. And yourself? I'm getting over COVID. Oh, that sucks. It sure does. Yeah. What, what was yours like? Mine was relatively mild, but my wife had it and half of her family had it. And cause we, you met, you know, got it from each other over the holidays. We, you know, we've got two small kids. So having to care for someone else while you're sick is not great, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've been, we've been dodging it and so far so good, but you know, they all say sooner or later we're going to get it. But you know, truthfully, we've been, I've been, we've been more, my wife and I've been more rigorous than we probably otherwise would have been because we have a 17 month old grandchild who we see a lot and we really don't want her to get it. So we've been, her parents too have been very rigorous. Yeah, we have been too until, you know, we had, we have a, a five month old. And there was kind of no negotiating my way out of a holiday trip to see the 90-year-old great-grandma, you know? <laughs> so, I don't know. I saw this this meme that was someone playing the the Mario Brothers level where it's just all like rods of – rotating rods of flame that you have to jump through. They're like people who haven't got COVID yet. This is – with their, yeah. There'll be one that will get through, right? Somebody will get yeah. the lever, level 127. There'll be one last person on earth that never had COVID. And, you know, maybe I'll be that guy. Who knows, right? <laughs> it was starting to feel like a Children of Men prequel. You know, I was like, you know, why is it, why is it that everyone went sterile in that film? Oh, I've heard of that children. I've heard of the book Children of Men. I've never, I didn't know there was a movie of it. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's a sort of, slow apocalypse you know where yeah i know the premise yeah yeah. i I know the premise i've seen reviews of the book the book is on my list of books to read but i didn't know it was made into a movie it's interesting oh god it's got one of the best climax sequences like the i think the last 20 or 30 minutes of the film are all one shot Mm. we'll have to check it out it's just extraordinary but yeah it's that same kind of thing it's like there's one person in the world that can still get pregnant yeah you know and it's like oh my god we've got to care for this person like a seed bank you know so, anyway, what else is fresh with you today, sir? Uh, are we on the air or are we just doing pregame? I don't know. We'll figure this out in post. Okay. Let's go on. A lot of things going on. Really in jamming mode, uh, getting ready to, we're trying, getting ready to launch a game B movie. Uh, it's going to world premiere 6 p.m. Eastern time on Monday. And, we're going to have a, that would be Monday the 17th, I guess. I don't know when you, I don't know what your uh, production backlog is, but it'll uh, be ancient history by the time this is out. But yeah, yeah but yeah, you can go check it out. It's called an initiation to game B. Also on the stoa will be the filmmakers and then a panel, which will consist of Daniel Schmachtenberger, Jordan Hall, Tyson Young Caporta and myself that will discuss the movie, the film. A filmmaker tells me I can't say movie. I have to say film. And I'm particularly interested in talking about the role of the arts in the unfolding of game B. Well, that's something I definitely want to touch on with you today. Okay. Uh, but first, I guess first the thing to do would be to assume zero knowledge on the part of an audience and to talk a little bit about you, 
your background, the road that got you to where we are now. So I'd love to, you know, because this is all a matter of kind of intense personal interest for me is just hearing people's autobiography and and knowing sort of like how you got into your career in the first place. I will say there is one topic, and I think I've told you, there's one topic we can't talk about on today's call because... Which I've is, been, oh, yeah, which is, oh, yeah, which my, is that, that my, institution. Yes. So unfortunately, there is a very key part of the story that actually happened there. Can, can, well, as long as it goes unnamed, I think we okay. can. Okay. We can. Well, okay. I will, I will euphemize it sufficiently. It's actually the critical event. Without this event, uh, it's the origin story for actually. So, but we'll just have to euphemize it. Well, let's right? go back even further. All right. Yep. And and let's talk about Jim Rudd as a as a young man or as a child. Yeah, as a right? child. Yeah. Because yeah. this is this is your entry into the the museum, the digital archives. This <laughs> is your fossil. Ah, it's going to be it. d- dug up in Svalbard or whatever in a thousand years. So you know the Game B film. Maybe it's on the blockchain and it's on the it survives on Mars somewhere. But you know after the great whatever on Earth, all they found was this. And so this is what they have to go off of. So what are they going to learn about you first? All right, cool. Yeah, I grew up in uh, a little town called Adelphi, Maryland, which was a working class suburb of uh, Washington, D.C. My parents were like a lot of people in our community. They had come from elsewhere right after World War II to reinvent themselves. My mother was from northern Minnesota. Grew up on a beat-ass tenant farm in the swamps of Minnesota. They didn't have electricity or indoor plumbing or a central heat or anything like that. She left home when she was 14, saved her money, and with her nickels, dimes, and quarters, took a bus to Washington, D.C. when she was 17, lied about her age, and got a job with the phone company. You know, my dad grew up in... uh uh, Patterson, New Jersey, kind of a very different spot. I worked for the rare, dropped out of high school after ninth grade when his father died and he had to help support the family. Went to work for the Erie Railroad through some family connections. Then worked at the railroad until World War II, joined the Marine Corps, fought in the South Pacific, was part of three invasions. Came back, worked for the rear, railroad for a year or two, got bored with it. And he and a good buddy went down to Washington, D.C., to take the exam for the Washington, D.C. Police Department. Apparently, they were advertising all over the Northeast. They both did pretty good, and they both joined the police. So my dad was a Washington, D.C. cop. The town I grew up in was uh, uh, upper working class, lower middle class, I'd describe it. You know, the think of the, the people on our block. You know, you had an electrician. You had a meat cutter. You had another electrician. You had a machinist. You had a bricklayer, stonemason. You had an HVAC dude, school teacher bank clerk, runner of a small used furniture business, and an FBI agent, and my dad, right? So it was kind of a, kind of interesting. It was a good place to, a great place to have grown up. It was an inner burb, to, we'd call it today, inside the Beltway in D.C., but at that point, it was at the kind of cutting edge of suburbification. Somebody had bought a farm and put 120 houses on it, and but there were still an abandoned farm behind us and some woods behind us, which never got developed through, through a bunch of interesting quirks of history. And so we had vast amounts of woods. Went on for miles, all interconnected woods that we could explore. And nobody was rich, but nobody was missing any meals. You know, this uh, D.C. after World War II was boomtown, right? There wasn't a recession from 1945 till 1992 that touched D.C. So all these upper working folks were doing great. 
and were enjoying life. You know, they weren't fancy people. They much prefer uh, Pat's Blue Ribbon beer or such to, you know, anything too fancy. But it was it was a great, great place to have lived. Lots of social capital still there. And there was lots of community-based organizations. We had our own private swimming pool and boys clubs, girls clubs, Boy Scouts, ballerina troops, you know, you name it. It was just, it was just good. Great place to have grown up. Well, that's great. Okay, so hold on just a second, because there are two things that I, I want to uh, focus on in that telling. Or actually, three, but let's start with two. One is that you and I share something that I think is a little strange, which is that both of our fathers were police officers. Ah, I had no idea. Yeah, my dad, other than, I mean, my dad was over 40 years in the travel industry, he, you know, working for Royal Viking Lines, Universal Studios, and then Walt Disney for the last 20 years of his career. But I was conceived in a home that backed up against the McLean Game Refuge in Simsbury, Connecticut. But I was born in Los Angeles because my parents moved out there and would be closer to my grandparents. And my dad was a reserve police officer on the Hermosa Beach Police Department. So that's an interesting thing. And I, one thing is I, w- I would like to explore with you what you think the influence of having a police officer father might have been on your your personality and on your your view of life. Because, I mean, I can definitely say in, in my case, when my parents split up, I was a teenager and I got arrested for shoplifting CDs from Walmart at like 16. And somehow my father knew when I went back to visit him in Orlando he, he, he sat me down in the kitchen. He's like, so do you have anything you want to tell me? And it turned out that he had a, an old friend in the Kansas City Police Department who was keeping tabs on every member of the family. <laughs> and so. <laughs> yeah, that's the way, that's the way it works. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, of course, my dad was a career police officer. He uh, did his 20 years and he retired and he did other stuff for a couple of years. Then he kind of went back into the federal government, ended up in federal law enforcement. So he was a, you know, classic Irish Catholic Marine cop. There's a whole bunch of those people in the, in the family tree and around and about. And it was interesting. It was, it was, it had a certain amount of glamour to it, actually. You know, I suppose I got a little secondhand status, you know, in the upper working class. Police were revered, I guess, or, or least considered, you know, role models and minor heroes and what have you. My father was, uh, he's very social character. He loved to talk, right? And got along well with everybody and was not considered a hard ass cop, right? He was, in fact, eventually, he finished his career as the uh, number two guy in the community relations division where they go around, do the cop, you know, policeman to school kind of stuff and what have you and what have you. But prior to that, he did it all. He was a, a beat cop for you know, nine years. Then he started getting promoted, ended up as a sergeant and then a lieutenant and where he ran a shift at one of the precincts and all. So he did the whole real cop thing. But yeah, growing up, you got to, you know, one, he certainly stressed the straight and narrow, not that we followed it, but you know, he, they stressed it. But I will say that's actually less important than the other values from him and my mother both, which were, you know, about honesty, good faith, you know, reliability, you know, if you have to be in, a, in the police department, if you were late twice in a year, you could be fired, right? And so we, that, that was all kind of just reinforced in us as to be, you know, punctual, be reliable, you know, just not, don't be a shitbird was the terminology in the police department in those days. Don't be a shitbird, a person who, you know, walks around with their shirt tail out and doesn't show up to work on time and stuff like that. So even though I suppose we could say we came from, uh, peasant on my mother's side and, you know, working class on my father's side, 
uh, we somehow developed some petite bourgeois values that probably flowed over for a part, at least in part, from his police thing. And uh, we were also taught physical courage, I would say. But that was not uncommon. That, you know, that was in our cap town. Everybody fought. You know, it was, you know, it was okay to lose a fight, but it was not okay to not fight, right? In fact, the one, the most famous character in our hometown, a complete derelict and wild man who had 800 people show up at his funeral and had the funeral procession led by the pagans, a notorious motorcycle gang, was famous for all the fights he got into and the fact that he almost always lost, but he had a big heart. So, you know, that was, that was part of it. My dad did teach me how to fight some Marine Corps and police tricks and stuff like that. So even though I, uh, as I like to say, I never started to fight in my life, just not my style, not my father's style either. You know, it wasn't that, it was not that guy. I ended plenty of fights, right? And so, that was, you know, part of my personality growing up, you know, and I was able to had this weird hybrid where I was, you know, a bit of a nerd in school, did pretty good in, in college, I mean, high school and stuff, but I also had my street cred, so I could kind of walk both sides of the street, and, and I think that was kind of interesting, and in some ways is probably an important part to my personality, and I would also say my success. In fact, someone said, well, how do you know? What would you attribute some of your business successes to? And I say, ah, growing up in my hometown, right? It taught you, you know, all these petite bourgeois values, but it also taught you to be fearless. Taught you a group adherence, because I would say there was a strong sense of community. And amongst the kids, there was a kid culture that was sort of independent of the adult culture. And there were, you know, you might call them uh, squads or gangs and stuff like that. And we all, you know, I had my own posse at one point. All those things were really, really good. And so, and so some of that was from sort of a little bit of police. But I would say it's, you know, sort of police plus growing up in a slightly rough and tumble kind of kind of neighborhood. Yeah, you know, my dad talks about the same kind of thing growing up in the Bronx that he, there was the squads that were like breaking off aerials on trucks and whacking each other with the aerials and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. stick ball. And that, you know, it's just like, and, and so that's interesting because that's kind of the second thing I wanted to talk to you about, which was, you know, my mom growing up in Kansas City has a very similar sort of memory of mid 20th century suburbia as being adjacent to undeveloped, like large, large tracts of undeveloped mm. land. Yeah, that was and, huge for me. Yeah. The, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, cause as you, when you're like, and the other cool thing was I was towards the end of the non-helicopter parenting epoch, right? Parents just turned you out in the morning and off you went and did you, well, you're four years old, you know, you wandered as far as you dared basically. And of course, a four year old, even a even a posse of four-year-olds isn't going to wander too far. And so this vast, I mean, literally this stretch of woods, before they put the DC beltway in, ran for about seven miles. You know, it wasn't real wide in some places, you know, a couple hundred yards wide in some places, maybe a little narrower, but in some other places it widened out, but it was all just interconnected. A lot of it became parkland later or schools, whatever. But we had this long, long, long mini wilderness to penetrate. And four years old, you didn't get out of that. You, you had to always, you never went any further than you could turn around and see where the houses were. But then when you were five, you went into the big woods. And then when you were six, you went down the creek. And then by the time you were probably six and a half, you made it to the power lines on the other side, right? Which was maybe 300 yards through the woods. But then for a long time, you didn't 
cross the power lines into the other side because who knows what was over there, right? And it was actually under the control of another neighborhood. Hmm, who, what, what would happen if you ran into them? Hmm, yeah. If you go over there, you better go over there with a pretty good-sized passel with uh, posse, with uh, sticks and, and and all that, right? And so, you know, that, and it was huge. We built tree forts all the time, ground forts, underground forts, had wars between the various forts. You know, it was very, very, I was a truly uh, formative in my experience. Hope you, it sounds like your mother had a serious, similar kind of kind of experience. Yeah, she she did. And to this day, she's still a complete romantic about creek crawling to find stones. My her her parents ended up moving out of Kansas City up to the the rural North End in Holt, where they bought I think eighteen acres or so up there, and and a, a, a sizable chunk of my childhood. Visiting them, I remember being down in the creek, you know, poking sticks at tadpoles and yeah, catching and that crayfish. Kind of that was one of our yeah. standbys, right? Catching minnows and we, and every, every, when we were say seven, eight, nine, we'd go out and catch box turtles and we'd build a, a turtle pen, you know, pretty good size, you know, 10 by 20 feet and we'd provide cover for them and food and water. And then my, I'll say my, father in particular was adamant about this. He says, okay, boys, you can have the turtles in their turtle pen for you know, the summer, but you know, come the fall, you're turning those turtles loose in a place that's good turtle habitat. And so we, we would, you know, we, our turtles would then be, you know, set back in the woods, you know, come late August. And uh, that was that, you know, that was a big deal. Okay. Let's go out in like May. Let's go out and find some turtles. Right. And when we got a little older, we knew where the best places were and all that. And just a funny little story. There was just about the wonderful, weird little edges and things. Uh, I said there was an old abandoned farm, which was eventually bought and turned into the elementary school. But it turned out there was one little tiny patch of wild strawberries that was right on the margin between this long woods and the school property. And nobody knew about it except me and this girl, right? And we went there and we didn't like each other exactly, right? We were not even friends. But every year from the time we were about 12 till we were 16, we would go to the strawberry patch every late May when the strawberries came and uh, we would pick them. And neither of us ever told anybody else ever. This is the first time no, I've, I've told the story, but it was one of the very first times I've ever told the story about the Claudia and my secret strawberry patch. And we never became friends. We never be, you know, it, it was, but it was a thing. Oh, I, I, were we friends? We weren't enemies, but you know, it was, it, we were never close friends. Certainly never romantic. And, but we had that secret. Like a, a missed opportunity. I don't know. That's. Nah. <laughs> secret strawberry patch. The secret strawberry patch. And every year we got, you know, I don't know. We would just run into each other and say, Hey, yeah, it's that time of year. Yep. I guess uh, Saturday we're going to the strawberry patch. And we did. And there'd be like, 30 wild strawberries. If you're pick wild strawberries are tiny, right? So 30 wild strawberries is uh, much less than a cupful. So, but, but you know, that, again, just a weird little thing about growing up in a place like that. So, yeah. So for me, that's, that's interleaved <sighs> with this thing of, about you talking about youth culture. Like, like after I got out of school studying paleontology, right around that time is when they, they found the first evidence I think in a, a trackway in Asia somewhere, I'm, I'm not remembering exactly that they thought that like these, the baby sauropods, like these enormous 50 ton dinosaurs, they were like, how are they like, are they giving live birth? How are these little baby dinosaurs 
staying in the herd with their parents that must eat this, you know, consume an enormous amount of food. And then it turned out that they don't, that they, they found the trackways that showed that the babies had their own like Lord of the Flies herds, that they would just lay the eggs and walk off and that the babies would grow up together and they would be preyed upon by these enormous as darked pterosaurs like Quetzalcoatlus that would stand up on these like death giraffes and just like pick off baby dinosaurs. Oh dear. These little baby herds. So, but I mean, but you know, that's. That seems very sort of like, I don't know, it rhymes with the kind of stories I'm hearing from you and and from my dad about the Bronx. But of course, you know, growing up in the Bronx, you don't have access to that kind of wilderness and it remains kind of at a romantic mythological distance. And so there's something interesting in your story about the the intersection of those of those things for me and and about how that has, you know, shaped your thinking on the this you know this the social theory and the economic theory that you espouse and that you explore in in game b etc you know and and the way that it, it has and so so that's one fork that we can take down this creek trail right and the other one possibly is the fact that you know you mentioned your mother working for the phone company your father working for the railroad and i i know that you made your career in you know, computer stuff, telecommunications and, and, you know, so there's, there's an interesting sort of like industry piece of this, which I think is the, I don't know if, do you ever watch uh, Deadwood? Oh yeah. So, so well, you know, kind of cusses like I do. Of course I'm going to watch Deadwood. Some of the best swearing by swear engine ever. Right. Yeah, well, you know, so, you, you know the one with him and the Chinaman, right? <laughs> oh God, yes. Yeah. So, so the exactly. We didn't build the railroads, okay? Yeah. Uh, but exactly. So, so yeah. There's this thing, you know, in the, in the Deadwood movie where the villain comes back and he's instead of his obsession with gold, he's now obsessed with putting in telegraph lines. And this, you know, he's got this. He's animated by this this sort of manifest destiny ghost of history to, you know, he's like, this is it. This is the thing. This is the future and I'm serving it. And, you know, and I, I catch not necessarily the villainous part of that, but I catch that, that sense of participation in the, in the boom, right. In, in the proliferation of these new technological platforms in your work. And I think that, I don't know if you can, if you can sort of square the circle between those two branches of the trail that would be really interesting because there's something about you know growing up in this lost boys kind of world but also in in the midst of the largest ever historical transformation in in the technological basis of our species that i think is really curious here and that's i think an undertold story in your generation Broadly, and that, and actually telling the stories of your generation is one of the significant major reasons that I started this podcast. And I've kind of languished on that front primarily, except for the, I mean, even when I got Kevin Kelly on the show, it was basically just talking theory. Like I didn't really get into his prehistory there. So I, I would love to hear this and how, how you might reflect on getting us to where we are today and the job that should go unnamed has a special preoccupation with interests in collapse, as do I, 
as someone trained in paleontology, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with extinctions and catastrophic failures generally. And there's no shortage of opportunities to study this phenomenon in, in my generation. And so, and I, you know, looking forward, I, I had Michael Dowd on the show last year. Michael Dowd is a pastor who actually toured Christian communities evangelizing evolutionary theory for years before he decided that it was actually more important to evangelize climate change. And he's got a, a series of interviews called the Post-Doom series, where it's basically about making peace with the fact that we've jumped the shark climatologically. Mm. And that, that you know, like basically, you know, smoke them if you've got them. You know, like mitigate if you can, but basically how do you make the best life knowing that the era that you grew up in in his estimation, and he's of, you know, he's probably the same age you are, is over now. And, and I, you know, I, I disagreed with him on several points in his thing. I think there's a lot of reason for hope. I am a, a cheerleader on team plastic eating microbes, but you know, I, I would love, to, yeah. Anyway, that's a lot to chew on and, uh, but I know you can. So. Yeah, let's, what the hell, right? Let, yeah, let me just do a fast forward through my bio and then plug in to the very beginnings of the online revolution. Right. So as I mentioned, I was pretty good at schoolwork as well as being a street kid. And somehow or other, I got accepted MIT and off I went and I didn't know much about higher education. Didn't hardly know anybody who was a college grad other than school teachers and Catholic priests and doctors, I suppose. And, but I had this vision. I was going to become a physicist, right? Cause that was, uh, the, of all the sciences, the one I liked the best and was pretty good at. And. But I went off and, you know, arrived in Cambridge, Mass, September 1971. Quite culture shock, as you can imagine, from a quite conservative, working class, rough and tumble kind of place to, you know, very left-wingy kind of counterculture-y kind of place. And uh, it, was, it was kind of, it was a bit off-putting, but I adapted pretty quickly. Uh, for about nine months, I refused to smoke marijuana because that's what goddamn hippies did, right? There was no, when I graduated high school, there weren't no marijuana. At least I never saw any, right? It was still a beer and whiskey kind of place, right? But after about nine months, I succumbed and, uh, like the rest of them and tried all the psychedelics and uh, had a good time, basically. But I decided that eh, the academic life was not for me. Did the psychedelics have anything to do with that? It might have, but actually, I think I made the call before I got into the serious psychedelics. I basically just decided that, because I was also a student of history, I said, you know, formal academia, PhD track, is the last remaining remnant of feudalism since the end of the Middle Ages. And, you know, just didn't... When were you at MIT? 71 to 75. So you were there when William Irwin Thompson was teaching history at MIT. Did you take a class with Bill Thompson? Did I? I don't know. I took one course in history there. It was boring. you know, William Irwin Thompson... I think rage quit MIT in 1973 saying that he teaching history at MIT was like being an atheist at the Vatican. Yeah, exactly. The, he, you know, any, it, being in the humanities was horrible there. I still recall my uh, first humanities course. It was actually a great course. It was a guy who was doing a sabbatical year from Columbia, Eugene Goodhart. And man, was he good, but he was brought almost to tears by the other apathy of most of the uh, MIT students. Uh, so yeah, I, I never heard that. Didn't know about that particular uh, uh, exemplar, but yeah, uh, teaching the humanities at MIT, including history, is like being an atheist at the Vatican. I just want to poke on this a little bit because you got to get yourself a copy of At the Edge of History because this is the book that Bill wrote right after leaving MIT. 
in the seventies on his passage to forming the Lindisfarne Association, which included Stuart Kaufman and Lynn Margulis and Paolo Soleri and founded the discipline of like facilitated the foundation of the discipline of neurophenomenology, putting Buddhists and neuroscientists together for the first time. Cool. And, and so, I mean, that's, yeah, I think you'll have a, a strange sort of anamnesis doing a little bit of research into the history. Anyway, so please, please continue. Yeah. 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 Uh, I did take one history course at MIT and it sucked. It was no good. It was just a very bland, traditional American history course. Bleh. But the, the other, the other humanities, I really enjoy. I took some writing courses. I took a course on Ulysses, Joyce's Ulysses. I enjoyed it. They, there are some really good teachers there, but man, I felt sorry for them. Probably, maybe it's different today. I don't know. But anyway, fairly early on, about halfway through sophomore year, I decided, nah, uh, not the academic track, but I figured, eh, you know, I'm the first to go to college in our family tree, so probably I ought to graduate. So I just kind of fiddle-fucked my way through undergraduate, graduated with some half-ass interdisciplinary degree. You know, they, those things were rife in the in the 70s, and then just sort of went off into the world. And I did, I did get some exposure to computers, but not a lot. I did some Fortran programming for the astronomy department. I uh, wrote the first model of any atmosphere other than the Earth's. We wrote a model of the atmosphere of Jupiter, for instance. Now, the cubes, you know, atmospheric models use cubes of atmosphere. Ours were 100 kilometers by 100 kilometers by 100 kilometers. So this is ridiculously loosey-goosey, and we didn't know what the fuck we were doing, but what the hell, right? So I got a little exposure to Fortran there. Took one computer science course, intro to as an undergraduate. Did a little SPSS programming in some of the social science courses I took in some of the business courses I took, but was by no means a computer nerd. And, you know, when I graduated, I just graduated, went back to my hometown, you know, took up my uh, position on the street, essentially, and got a job as a car salesman because it was, it looked like easy work and easy money. And so... I uh, did that for a year, paid off my student loans, and then quit and hitchhiked around the country for a year. Actually, I took a long hitchhiking trip when I graduated, too. Went out to the West Coast, up and down the West Coast, around and about and back, and up to Boston for a, a few weeks and then back. But I took a really long one, gone for almost a year, you know, after my uh year selling cars. And that was really a lot of fun. Got to see the country at the grassroots level. And again, very, I would say very formative part of my development, you know, came back in 77, said, ah, I better get a real job. God damn it. You know, Hey, I'm getting old. I'm almost 23. Right. And so I looked around and said, okay, what's another kind of fairly easy, but interesting job. And somehow I stumbled into the college textbook industry and became a college textbook peddler for a very nice small company called Wadsworth and became the man on the ground in eastern Kentucky, East Tennessee, and in the southwestern corner of West by God, Virginia. And so I'd run around to all the colleges and meet the professors and pebble our books and, and what have you. I turned out I was pretty good at it. And as I uh, explained to people later, it was kind of like getting a PhD that was a mile wide and an inch. Because my technique, everybody had a different technique. My technique was just to talk to the people about what their work they did and what they were doing, right? And uh, so I had some amazingly interesting conversations with these college professors. And some of the colleges were quite good. Some of them were quite bad. But, uh, you know, they were all over the place. I talked to anybody. I don't care. And one of the things I started seeing about... 1979, 78, 79, were these weird things on professors' desks, big old boxes about, you know, two and a half feet wide, two feet deep, 
foot tall. What the hell are those? Oh, those are computers, right? These are like North Star Horizon, MSI, MITS, you know, some of these very early kit computers. And profs, particularly in engineering departments and math departments, physics departments, chemistry departments, you know, they were kind of just like into it. I, I just have to ask, do you know Bruce Damer by any chance? No. Bruce Damer, a dear friend of mine, old friend of mine, he has the the Digibarn in Boulder Creek, California. It's a computer history museum. I think it's the greatest private computer history museum in the world. He actually has like all of Apple's foundational paperwork that they were going to shred. He managed to like escape and like pull out in a bunch of Tupperwares. He's got an like analog computer. He has the first desktop computer in his place. I, I, I will have to connect you with Bruce. Oh, that would be hilarious. Yeah. I've seen, yeah, you go, go check out the Digibarn. It's extraordinary. Anyway, please continue. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I start seeing these things and I go, huh, that's kind of interesting. And, um, so I started uh, putting some percentage of my focus on what the hell are these things? Microcomputers. They weren't even called personal computers yet because a lot of them were designed to be like little small business computers, you know, running CPM. You could run accounting systems on and stuff. But it also turned out you could do mathematical calculations. And then what I was interested in was simulations. I started to become interested in Monte Carlo simulations I, because I was always reading, 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 reading. I started reading about Monte Carlo simulations. And I actually had bought a programmable calculator, a TI-90, that you could actually write in an assembler code and it had a magnetic strip like a card reader. You could put a thousand statements on the little magnetic card and then run it back through. And I actually wrote a Monte Carlo simulation of our publishing company. And this was hilarious. Living in Kentucky in the summertime when we didn't have much work to do as college textbook peddlers, I wrote this thing. It took 17 hours to run. And the problem was in the summer, thunderstorms were always coming through and the power would glitz. And so getting 17 hours of power that didn't glitz was, was problematic. That was uh, pretty funny, but yeah, but anyway, fun. So anyway, the people were doing this kind of stuff. So I got really fascinated with this, started talking to them about it and all this and started doing research. So this is a coming thing. Personal computers are coming. I saw, you know, subscribed to Bitbyte magazine and started hitting the, the little nascent computer stores that were starting to emerge. And certainly in late 79 and 80, they're, they're really starting to emerge, even some bigger ones in some of the bigger towns. And I was convinced that this is the future. And so, you know, I'm always exploring, you know, it's back to the woods, right? As a, you know, as a three-year-old going to the edge of the woods and a four-year-old going a little further, six-year-old further still, I've always had this desire to go to the edge, right? To always be exploring. And maybe it came from all that. I don't know. But anyway, I just became convinced that this whole personal computer thing uh, was going to be interesting and important. And in the 1980, early 80, dumped about 90% of my net worth into buying a high-end Apple II, right? I was one of the few people in Lexington, Kentucky that had two, kind of two floppy drives. So people would come over to my apartment and copy disks, right? I had a dot, a high-end dot matrix graph, graphics-capable printer, all this stuff. That was fun, right? I think it was $4,500 the, the whole rig cost me. Uh, and it had the stupendous amount of 48K of RAM in it. And we're not talking Meg here, not talking gay, we're talking K. You know, that was, most of them had 16K at the time, but I splurged for the 48K version. And that was the most you could put in one at the time. And, and I 
rewrote my simulation that took 17 hours to run on TI-99 calculator, and it had taken me weeks to write an assembler. I rewrote it in about 20 minutes on the Apple, and it ran in 30 seconds. So that was that was quite interesting. I went I then went on to write the world's champion Othello game in 6502 assembler, hand-coded, beat an IBM 370, and uh, really got into computing. I mean, I, 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 I had a ambivalent to negative relationship with the, the computer center kind of computing when I was at MIT where you'd, you know, write your programs on punch cards and you turn them in and uh, you get your printouts back and then they'd only let you turn your cards in once every 12 hours. But on your own computer, you just go, you know, and you know, late into the night was just like extraordinarily seductive. So I quickly, you know, just learned a lot about them and was uh, said, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, now I found something I'm actually interested in from a business career perspective. You know, the college textbook was, yeah, you know, it was a job and, you know, I was pretty good at it. Was, had been tagged as a potential star of the future and would have been a editor, then a, you know, uh, blah, senior editor and probably a division president, whatever. But it was kind of, okay, you know, you know, beach digging ditches, but it didn't really excite me that much, but computers did and especially personal computers. So I, uh, made a campaign to convince our publishing company to start a uh, software division, educational software division. It took me a while, and I, but I eventually did. But and, and the, but then they were taking their time. And then, oh yeah, then the parent company, They by the, in the meantime, they'd been bought by some big major conglomerate. And uh, there was some budgetary crunch at the conglomerate, even though our unit was doing well. And they said, no new initiatives for six months. And of course, being 26 years old, I go, fuck that shit, right? Uh, and I went out and started looking for jobs in educational software, got like three offers. And, but, well, I was doing this, I stumbled across another thing by accident in a computer store. I found a magazine called Source World. And I go, what the hell is this? So I bought it and took it home. And it was for a brand new service called The Source, which was the first consumer online information service. Before CopyServe, there was The Source. CopyServe and The Source were about contemporaneous, but Source was first. And they had they published this glossy magazine and uh, that they peddled through computer stores. And uh, you could buy a membership to The Source at the local computer store. So I did. And uh, you log on. And what the hell is this online world with thousands of people in it? And it had surprisingly, by 1981 at least, it had a lot of what we have on the web today. It had chat and bulletin boards. It had the shopping, it had email, it had news, it had squat stock quotes, it had all kinds of stuff. It text text mode only thirty characters a second at ten dollars an hour. I mean, this was a, a tiny little niche, right? Why would anyone pay ten dollars an hour for thirty characters? Right? Because there was no alternative, right? If you were a per, if you did not have access to a university that was hooked to ARPANET, which even in universities most professors did not, the only way to get access to some interconnected world was the source, and then CompuServe soon thereafter. And so there was a small number of maniacal people that just said, "Holy shit!" and then paid ten dollars an hour for this text mode interface to this intersection of people. And I said, "Okay, now this is this is." considerably more interesting than uh, educational software. So I wrote a, uh, one of the interesting power tools. My Apple allowed me to write 
faster and better than most people in those days. And that was part of how I won the war at my publishing company is I wrote this 17 page memo, you know, that used Apple writer to write. And then, but I, I did something similar, but it was only five pages to send off to the source. And I said, I can build a $2 billion business for you people in the educational area. Right. And, you know, bombast, but you know, typical ruddy and rhetoric was full of facts and figures and logical arguments and this and that. And they immediately replied and said, and next time you're around the D.C. area, let's, why don't you stop by? Let's talk. Turns out, as I mentioned, I grew up in the D.C. area. I was going to be back there for Thanksgiving, which was in about three weeks. And so I stopped by the source and chatted with them. And they said, well, you know, you seem like an interesting young fellow. Uh, but the only job we have open now is regional sales manager for Chicago, for the Midwest. And I thought about it for a little bit. And so well, let me think about it. I really would prefer to move into a product role, but they said, well, something will come up, you know, just, but that's the one, we, that's what we got open right now. I said, okay, so let me go back and think about it. So I thought about it. Actually, it turned out my publishing company got wind of it. I was very close to my boss. He was a really wonderful guy. Hi, Mike Needham, if you happen to be listening to this. And he had told him, hey, Rutt's getting ready to quit. He's pissed off because you won't let him do his software division. So they somehow did some magic or other. And I got a call from the C-E-C-O-O, I think, saying, oh, Jeff, don't quit. You know, we got approval for your software division. And so I went out and went for a walk. And as I always do, when I have to make a key decision. And, I, and my rule is before my foot touches the front step, I will have decided. And fortunately, it turned out to be an easy decision. And I said, the future is networking. And so this was 1980, right? This was before we had any idea whether that was being true. And for the longest time, I kicked myself in the ass because people I knew had gone to work in, the, you know, in the PC business, the hardware business or PC software. And that those industries took off a lot faster, actually, than the uh, the network businesses did. But I said, the networks, are, this is it. This is the future. This is the, you know, this is the opposite of collapse. This is growth from you know, level zero, essentially. And I said, this is going to be the world someday. God damn it. So I, I called uh, this very senior executive back uh, up and said, hey, you know, I really appreciate it, but I've decided to do the other thing. And so I called the people at the source and said, all right, I'll take your job. My wife and I rented a uh, rider truck, loaded all our crap in it, and drove from Lexington, Kentucky to Chicago in a snowstorm. And then unloaded our crap and moved into uh, an apartment that I had found on a on a uh, house hunting uh, trip. And then, sure enough, a job did come up in the home office to run uh, market research. And so I applied for that, and they gave it to me. And I moved back to the HQ, and yeah, I didn't know anything about market research. What the hell? But I could make I could learn anything pretty quick, and uh, I did. And we actually did have some pretty good market research there for a while. And then I ran the software application software division for a bit. And then I was like the, you know, assist, associate head of product management, what have you. And I built the second generation, I designed the second generation email system. I generated this, designed the second generation bulletin board system. And I was co-product manager on a very interesting product called Participate, which I would say was a precursor of social media. And all this was in 1981 and 82. And we certainly thought we were doing the good work for the world, right? We were absolutely convinced that this would help democracy and help society. How could it not? You know, everyone would be much better informed, all this sort of stuff. How could it not? I mean, how could it not, right? We were absolutely convinced. It's, it's funny because the episode I just finished editing was a very, very tense panel discussion at Complexity Weekend on Web3. 
mm. and on on you know taking a complex systems for position on web three and like critiquing it, you know, and saying, okay, are we basically, you know, asking the question that it sounds like you and your, your colleagues were not asking in 1980 and 81, which is, are we accidentally damning the future? You know, this, yeah. this, yeah. like, are we, what are we, what are the, the, uh, the spandrels in this thing that are going to get populated by some, you know, opportunistic, horror and those are very good questions that people should be asking right but uh, we we all suffered from boomeritis right in our prime full of piss and vinegar we're going to reinvent the world god damn it and uh, the world needs reinventing and whatever we reinvent is going to be good right and probably should have had a uh, a little forewarning but we didn't want participate Uh, this first thing that you could probably call social media immediately evolved into a warfare between mimetic tribes as we would say today and we go what huh and we came up with some ad hoc fixes and stuff but it was constantly you know trying to dampen out the the flare-ups of mimetic warfare everywhere and uh, some of the first great flame wars and oh it was interesting were you uh, a censor jim were you a social media censor in the 80s jim uh, no no i did not I'd not personally ever do that. In fact, quite the contrary. I, one of the other things I personally invented was something called user publishing. During my market research phase, I had invited a number of prominent source users to come to headquarters and, and just chat. And several of them had their own little publications on the source. The source had some programmability to it. You could actually write software on it and have other people run it and stuff. And some people had put together kind of half-assed bulletin board software, rogue independent, and publications had formed. And there were several of them that were pretty good. So I invited five of them to come to McLean. We chatted about it. And then when they left, I said, hmm, I smell something here. And so I uh, convinced the bosses after quite a bit of work to uh, allow me to launch something called user publishing, where we built, I wrote it actually, some new software for the people to use. And some of them wanted to continue to use their own software. We said, that's fine. And we came up with the APIs to allow them to get paid. And so here it was, 1980, late 81, I think we launched user publishing. And 17.5% of the revenue that was generated, because the clock is always running on the source, went to the publishers. And so we launched this. It was a huge success. Within a couple of months, it was the number five product out of several hundred on the on the source. But anyway, one person put up a a publication that that had an essay about the varied uses of the word fuck, you know, and it was very humorous. It was brilliantly written. And this thing started pegging the meter all time, highest uses anything on the source had ever had. And because, you know, the source was actually a network, you know, between email and chat and bulletin boards and participate, messages could disseminate over the graph, right? And they did very rapidly. So within, by the second, by the second day, this was by far the most popular thing that had ever been on the source. And so I get a call from the CEO. You know, I really liked him, a very good guy named Graham Keeping. Hi, Graham, if you're out there. And he, the source had been acquired. It's a horrible mistake in history. Source was acquired by the Reader's Digest, which you go nowadays like that's a total joke. But in those days, it was one, it was one of the biggest publishing companies in the world. You know, two billion dollars of revenue or some ridiculous thing. Anyway, Graham was actually one of the only good people that ever came down from the uh, Digest. But it was the Reader's Digest. I mean, this is the most square 
bourgeois, bland publication known to man. It was, in fact, it was a cliche of blandness to say that something was the Reader's Digest, right? So uh, Graham calls me into his office and says, what do I hear about this essay that's going crazy on the source? And I go, well, Graham, it was blah, blah. And oh, yeah. And I read a, a paragraph from it. And he was trying not to laugh because he's actually a great guy. But uh, he's trying to be the stern boss from the Reader's Digest. And I go, yeah, this thing is great, don't you think? And he goes, well, I, it's probably not appropriate to have something like this on a property owned by the Reader's Digest, wouldn't you think? And he was a Canadian, so he had that little bit of a Canuck accent. But I go, well, I think this is great. I mean, I think this is funny. It's accurate. It's short because at 30, 30 characters a second, $10 an hour, a short is its own reward. I think this is exactly what we should be having on the source. And he goes, do you really think so? I go, yes. And then he says, well, I don't think so. You know, I think that you need to take that down. And I told him, and we had, we had a very good relationship, but I said, nope, I'm not going to unless you specifically order me to. I just paused and stopped. And he said, well, I specifically order you to take it down. And I said, yes, sir. And I turned around and walked out of the office and took it down. So that was my one and only example of me personally censoring anybody. I mean, you got to keep your job. Yep. And, well, you know, I didn't really care that much about my job because I realized I was in a hot spot now. But I also respected Graham and figured that, yeah, he probably knew more than I did about the gestalt of the situation. And I respected him enough to not say, fuck you, I quit, or argue with him endlessly, but make him to have to pull the trigger. And it didn't hurt our relationship at all. We're still, I talked to him Six months ago, you know, we always had a good relationship. But that was my one. I, ne- I never was a censor, never, never a believer in censorship. Still not a believer in censorship. Still pisses me off that so many of the people who used to be advocates for net freedom have gone over to the dark side and, and want to choke our information sphere. But anyway, so that, that was interesting. But, but, and Graham got fired eventually or kicked somewhere else because he was, he was a little too much of a radical for the Reader's Digest. They sent this real turn down from the Reader's Digest, who eventually ended up being CEO of the whole thing. So I suppose he was a bigwig, but man, he was a useless turd, didn't get at all what we were up to. And I had a, you know, once he'd been there about a week, he called me in and said, all right, what, what are we supposed to be doing here? Blah, blah. And so I presented with something I'd been on, working on for Graham, which was the theory of our future. And I said, I'd analyze all the data and looked at our competitors. There's only one, CompuServe. I think only one at that point. Uh, I said, the future is not these information products that we're spending so much time on, but the, the network connecti- connectivity stuff. All of our, more than all of our profit comes from email, chat, user publishing, participate, bulletin boards, et cetera. And look at CompuServe. They're going crazy with this new thing called special interest groups, which are very similar to Facebook groups. Very similar. Only in some ways better, better functionality in some ways in 1980. And I said, we should not be, we should reorient our product development budget away from all these ponderous information products, which nobody uses and are very expensive and time consuming and have high royalties and all this stuff and uh, build out this suite of connectivity products, including multi-user chat, which CompuServe had just rolled out. We did not have, I said, this has, that has to be priority one. We have to have a SIG killer. Here's what it would look like. You know, we have to have a second generation to participate and all this stuff. And he goes, well, young man, or don't you know that content is king, you know, or some kind of horrendous publisher 
cliche. And I just turned around and, okay, yeah, here's my report. Yeah, have a nice day. Went out and immediately called up a guy who had made me an offer uh, to come join his startup and uh, a couple of weeks before. And I said, hey, Bill, is that offer still good to go join your startup? Uh, he goes, yep. I said, let's talk. I'll give you a call tonight. So I uh, ended up uh, joining a startup in Boston and quit my job at the source and in disgust and went to Boston to do a startup. And the source failed. Just right place, right time, sort of the right idea, but the wrong management and a horrible culture, terrible culture. In fact, during my entrepreneurial years, I would often use the reasoning method. How would they have done this at the source? And then do the exact opposite. I mean, it was bad. Oh, well. But So so this is actually, this is great because this brings us to the question that I had for you before this. You know, I love just wandering through the woods with you here. But I know, and I've told you this, that I wanted to ask specifically about, you've said in other places that you are proud for having encouraged dissent in your companies. Absolutely. And of course, I'll just go just lay it all out there on the table as a new age weirdo and say, I have a, an ascendant Mars in Libra, which I am told means that I love fighting in order to achieve some sort of diplomatic solution or common understanding that like I, I come at people with a challenge in order to find a synthesis. And this is something that I see in you and something that I really respect and something that I'm curious to understand in the way that it is instantiated and enacted in an organizational structure and in, in practice and like how, how does one, because let's be real, like, and you know this, most companies don't do this. They suck. Yeah, they're broken. They're morally and co- they're corrupt and broken. And I figured that out at the source. And when I did my startup, fortunately, uh, this much more senior guy who brought me in as the junior founder understood that if he just let me have my head, it would be a good thing. And so he basically just stayed out of the way. And he, you know, he had some great expertise in one part of our business and he did that and he let me run the rest of the company. And, and that included the culture. And so you this is, I think my most important insight in business and in life that I ever had. And I will say Wadsworth Publishing had this to a reasonable degree. They were a very good and honorable company. So I think I probably saw the weak form of it there. I saw the, and the the uh, anti pattern at the source, which was full of corporate bureaucrats brought in from places like Xerox and you know former army colonels and uh, and where everybody lied to everybody else and it was all politics all the time and what meeting you got to be in was a measure of your status, not the work that you did. And, oh, you know it was an anti pattern for how to run a business. So when we had our first company and in all my companies thereafter. And I tried to insert this even into big corporate America when I went back to big corporate America later in my career. The first value is intellectual honesty. The first value. Uh, You will always say what you think. And then the second rule is playing politics in the first degree will get you fired on the spot. And even later when I was working back in big corporate America and recruiting a manager to work for me, I'd say, 
I still remember I told this to a guy who was going to run advanced labs for me, Thompson Labs, which was a bunch of PhD level R&D people. And I said, uh, if you play politics in the first degree, I will fire your ass, uh, blah, blah. And uh, what do you mean by that? I go, well, you know, make anybody try, make anybody try to look bad. You try to withhold information that the organization needs. You misattribute who came up with an idea. Any of these things, I will fire you. I have references, right? And I said, on the other hand, if you steal money out of the petty cash drawer, I'll probably give you a second chance, particularly if you're going to use it for something worthwhile, like go out and get drunk or something, right? So I made, a war on politics and intellectual honesty as the prime value, my two foundation stones for my entrepreneurial career. And of course, with that, you had to have some auxiliary values. Never, ever shoot the messenger. Uh, a person who brings you bad news is a hero, right? They're the hero because they have brought forth a useful information on a timely basis so that you can make better decisions. You know, and, and when you know other, other companies I've looked at, of course, when I was at Thompson, I, we did vast amounts of due diligence. We bought 80 companies a year. So I got to see lots of companies under the skin. And as we're all well aware, the lying that goes on about where things are at in corporate America, why are products always late, right? My products were never late. That was my hallmark. When our products were delivered on time, on budget, God damn it, right? Why? Because we honestly budgeted both the time and the money. And everyone knew, do not lie. Do not, pa- do not give false estimates to make the bosses happy, right? Uh, we will figure out what we actually need and how long it will actually take. And that's what we'll say. And if they don't like it, we won't do the project. But we're not going to lie. But in most businesses, all the incentives are to lie about how long it'll take and how much it'll cost. And then the thing ends up costing you know, three times as much and takes four times as long. And that just screws everything up. So I never tolerated that. Everybody knew I didn't tolerate it. And nobody ever, you, know, you never got negative consequences for bringing those bad you know, bad news forward, you were the hero because you said, oh, that ain't ever going to happen. Well, let's figure out how to make it happen. I say that a business is nothing but a machine to process information. So why would you not want the very best information? So the worst virus your machine can have is politics and lack of intellectual good faith. Awesome. So, okay, I feel like at this point we can pivot a little bit here. I mean, I do, I do want to hear about the next act here. I, I do want to hear about the later eighties and the nineties and on into today. But I, I, I also really want to take this opportunity to ask a question that I think has been burning in people's minds about game B broadly. And, and you let us right onto the doorstep of this question, which is about this notion of non rivalry, right? Because, okay. I, I got to be frank with you. You know, I work so hard. I don't have enough time to listen <laughs> to the enormous volumes of information that are conversations that other people are having about this out there. So, I, you know, just count me as sort of the usefully naive in this regard. But, I mean, I'll put it in the words of a friend. People who hype Game B do so in a way that seeks to expand as much territory as possible into people's dissatisfactions never winds up being tremendously generative as a thought tradition, combined with Rule Omega, which says essentially that you should give everyone the benefit of the doubt. You wind up in these weird over-accepting philosophical positions that allow things like propertarianism to find a home. 
So this is actually Naomi Most, whom I know you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Naomi asked me to ask you if you can define any part of Game B in terms of what it stands for as opposed to what it's simply a reaction against. And then also the remora on the shark of this question is this thing about the privilege of being able to disagree, right? Because there's all of this, you know, there's research into the tragedy of the commons that the model for the tragedy of the commons is mistaken in that it doesn't allow people to leave you know, no one's allowed to just walk away, right? There's voice and there's exit, but right. exit is not in the tragedy of the commons model. Right. And so, you know, as soon as you add exit, it gives you this thing. But of course, here we are and, you know, zooming out to the situation, right? Where is the exit now? You know, like the reason as somebody brought up in one of my Facebook groups I moderate the other day that there's a, there's a strong mm-hmm. argument that the reason that we, you know, that it's not specifically mutually assured destruction that has prevented a major nuclear exchange, but that the interconnectedness of supply chains. No. So, you know, like how do we reconcile all of these things? And, and, you know, what are we even talking about when we were talking about non-rivalry? And, and do you think that there is, as someone who seems to espouse non-rivalry, but at the same time jousts for sport and has for your entire life, where do you stand on these things really? And, and how do you, you know, can you give us any clarity about this stuff? Actually, first, I'm going to say you will never find me espousing non-rivalry. Okay. Not in blank terms like that. I don't believe you'll find it anywhere in anything I've said or written. I don't believe so. I have a much more subtle take on all that. And, but let's go back to the early, some of the earlier questions and we'll get to, to our, where I want to get to on this, which is yes, game B is sort of famously a bag of stuff, right? There is no doctrine. There is no legal entity. You know, there is no journal. Anyone who wants to call something game B can and they do, but there are some things that at least from my perspective, game B stands for. And the you know, first one, and this is, you know, to the history. Well, we've been a little history here. The origin story of Game B actually goes back to a four-hour conversation between myself and a fellow named Jordan Hall. Uh, he was a young guy. He had, had lots of business success, retired young. And he and I were both trustees of a well-known academic uh, instit- uh, think tank. I guess they wouldn't want to call themselves that, but whatever they are. And after one of the board meetings, I don't know, he wanted to chat with me about something or other. And so we went to a, a, a place well known in this other place and had a four hour conversation. And the gist of it was we basically just t- told each other our live stories for about half of it, just like we did here. And, you know, I basically said, when I started in business, Companies would not do things they thought were wrong. And I gave some examples, right? And, and this was actually 1975. And I even, I think I may even gave him the example of the fuck essay and Marshall Graham, I mean, Graham Keeping saying, you know, he thought it was wrong. So we didn't do it, even though it was popular, making us lots of money. And he, Jordan said in 1994, when he entered the business world, the neoliberalist model was fully in ascent, which is if it is profitable and arguably legal, you must do it. And I said, well, yep, I would say I was seeing that certainly by then. And then we both agreed catching up to 2007 or eight or whenever this conversation had that the new ethos of late status quo was if 
the penalty for getting caught is less than the benefit from doing it, then you are morally obligated to do it. And we think since then, how many times have Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Apple been caught and fined billions of dollars for doing things, right? Google and Facebook constantly. These guys are like career criminals. But obviously, they're doing the calculation that the cost of being caught is less than the benefits of doing it. These are very, very smart people. So they're running on an utterly sociopathic operating system. And we both just had this epiphany that said the base of a decent society is honesty and good faith. And it's not operating on the sociopathological models of it's arguably legal and profitable, then you must do it. So first, Game B stands for a society where honesty and good faith is not a sucker strategy. And that's literally what we said to each other. I think we actually used those words, or if not in an email, back and forth within a day or two, that in our current society, being absolutely committed to honesty and good faith is a sucker's strategy, right? And I said, that is fucked up. Why would a society want to be that way? It wasn't that way that long ago, uh, but it is that way now and in spades. And so whatever it is that we're going to hope to aspire to, and we weren't really even aspiring to anything at that point. We're just complaining, right, that... That, this is pathologically wrong. And so that's number one. That's the base upon which Game B is built. And in all of our online venues, we have rules, you know, even though it's kind of a, a pretty anarchic place where there are some rules. And that's one of them, that honesty and good faith in everything we do, at least with each other. We do allow duplicity when uh, dealing with others outside of Game B to advance Game B. But within Game B, honesty and good faith at all times, right? Kind of like the mob, right? You know, you got you know, you got to honor each other within the mob. But eh, if you got to whack people outside, that's the way it goes, right? Well, so that's interesting, right? Because... Again, you know, if you're thinking about mobs of kids running around in the woods and you're thinking about Deadwood, then and you're thinking about, you know, the controversial but arguable collapse of Western civilization, then what you're talking about, this, you know, the sociopathic behavior of these large tech corporations is because they have created the frontier that has allowed them to outpace regulation. And so, you know, if you're talking well, about- yes and no, yes and no, because you may not need any regulation, right? I suppose these were run by people of, of high Aristotelian virtue who had found a way to escape the multipolar trap. You could have good Facebook without any regulation at all. But how do you have that? Is an That's interesting a, question, right? Yeah, like, and we're, we're so far from that uh, today, right? And of course, the, you know, the the fundamentals. And again, this is the purely Ruttian view. Others, uh, I think, generally in the game B world, uh, support it. But again, this is my personal point of view: is that a society in which the ultimate value is short-term money-on-money return will generate this anti-pattern called game A, late-stage game A, to uh, be specific. So if the only value is short-term money money return, then you will get what we got. But Graham Keeping was not operating on that, right? He thought saying fuck was, not saying fuck was a value more important than maximizing economic return. He, they were, he was actually 
principled guy in his own way. And I would say I've saw, there were other examples of that in businesses I was in in the old days, but not anymore. God damn it. Now it's if short term money on money return, fuck anything else. And that's what we're doing. And when you let the beast loose like that at the values level, because it wasn't regulation that was stock Graham. It was a sense of what is right and what is wrong. So a society's got to be based on virtue. Uh, and this is something that most game B people agree that we have to take virtue deadly seriously and being seriously non-virtuous has to have consequences. And if you think that the uh, tech execs of, in this current generation are virtuous, uh, I've got some real estate to sell you at low tide, right? <laughs> right. Well, so, okay, so that's, or, or even at high tide these days, right? Because high tide today is not tomorrow's high tide. Right. So, <laughs> so this is the thing, right? This is the question that keeps me up at night and I, the question that I ask people over and over again on this show, which is, how do you get, again, to rephrase that, you know, how do you get a virtuous Facebook? How do you institute these kind of multipolar values in a society where the reward schedule and amplitude for this kind of short-termism has clearly taken over and has run away with the entire train. And like, how do you steal back the train? This is the essence of the question, right? This is the essence. And do we have the, the answer? The answer is we do not. But we do have some, I think, beginning places to start. And, you know, this is also very important. And why Game B is so confusing to people is that it is not a doctrine. It is not an ideology. It is sort of a rough set of ideas for undertaking an exploration, an exploration in very high dimensional design space, which is called a social operating system. And so the actual answer of how to build an industrial scale society without multipolar traps I don't have the answer to that, but I know we got to. And the path that we're currently on in Game B, at least part of Game B world, which I call the bottom-up side of Game B, is the way we're going to do it is the Buckminster Fuller way. We're going to build it. And I don't care if there's a immoral Facebook out there. Fine. We'll build a moral something else that actually won't be anything. It won't even be Facebook. But we will do things that provide a sense of well-being for people in such a way that they won't miss Facebook. And we'll do it at the micro level initially, community by community, and then the communities will be networked together and they'll operate their own economy to a limited degree. At the same time, they'll be coupled to Game A. We'll be explicitly parasitizing Game A to build more Game B. And we will over a period of years, build the alternative that will be way more attractive to people till we reach the first tipping point at about 3%. uh, Then we'll get to the second tipping point around 15%. And it's possible from that point forward, the transition will happen fairly rapidly. So build it from the bottom up and they will come. Okay. So this goes out to Benjamin Taylor, another member of the Future Fossils community and interesting systems thinker who wanted me to ask you the following First of all, and this is sort of a forked tongue of a question, I'll ask the nicer half of it first. What way of life around the world and across time feels most Game B to you? Who are the people that you feel are exemplifying this that we can look to as inspirations? And then also, you know, not to throw you under the bus or have you throw anyone under the bus, but who do you see as associated with Game B and the wider space or movement that worries you in this regard, in the sense that like, again, you know, to Naomi's question, like this is this sort of anyone is welcome kind of thing. 
as you know, only works up to a point. Like at some point you have to enforce a boundary. At some point you have to kick somebody out for being a, a pain in the ass. Or as you know, you brought up uh, Boomeritis, which is the first Ken Wilber book I ever read. And I love uh, it. I love it so much. There's it's actually a book called Boomeritis. I have to go read are that. You, oh my God. Are you kidding me? No. Oh, I, oh have I, was, I was just, con- I was just, I uh, thought I was coining an expression there for no, me. No, no. So, so yes, how boomer of you. Sorry. Yeah. But the, the, no, but the thing is that Ken, he, his, his definition of boomeritis is that the postmodern moral relativism dissolves the value structures of what Robert Keegan would call third or fourth order consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you have the religious structure in which you have a role and a rules set of rules that you've inherited, or you have the modernist structure in which you have a self-authoring values, mm-hmm. you know, value system going on. But then in, in post-modernity, it's just sort of dissolved in the acid bath of this network that, that we've built here, uh, you know, what Doug Rushkoff calls uh, fractal noia, you know, that, that it just, it all starts to wash together and what emerges from that. And, and Kenton writing this book in, I think 2002 forecast the Trump administration, because he said, what, what happens is that you have like autocratic power hungry monsters come into this space. And he was actually at the time, you know, it's funny because in, in a weird way, Although I don't think Ken wants to be associated with the intellectual dark web, he was also ringing an alarm bell against the effects that this was going to have in academia, where academia would cease to become a discussion of the the exchange of ideas, and it would become all about the discussion of power and the exertion of power. And so, I mean, these bunch of a bunch of questions. Yeah, let's start. Let's start. The question is: the question is basically, how does game B avoid? boomeritis, right? How does game B avoid itself from being co-opted by these uh, sociopathic players if it's going to be organized in this bottom-up kind of way? Yeah, it's got to be very aware of it. And, and it has to be able to defend itself, right? It's uh, to John Holland, one of my very favorite human beings as well as thinkers. The last book he wrote, which uh, was probably complete book called Membranes and Messages or something like that. You can look it up here. It's actually an important Game B text. Uh, Holland book. Signals and Boundaries, I think is it. Signals and Boundaries. Yeah, here we go. Building Signals and Boundaries, Building Blocks for a Complex System by John Holland. So the units of Game B-ness have to constitute a membrane. Uh, within the membrane, a local social operating system will exist, uh, which is very, very aware of the problem of sociopathy, of the, the topics of real Game B discussion, how to control slash harness sociopathy is always one of the top two or three questions, right? And so within the social operating system, uh, within the membrane, there will be a whole series of tools and techniques to be developed, but are also to be borrowed to keep the sociopaths in place. Because sociopaths are probably actually useful sometimes, like in wartime. You probably want a sociopath as the guy at the machine gun nest. He'll just stay there till the very end. Or the guy who will, you know, go forth with a bayonet and three grenades and go kill the other guys, right? You need those people. Hector and Achilles, yes. 
Exactly. You, want, you need those people, uh, but only 1%. And then, you know, about 1% of, of humanity is sociopaths. Probably good. Those should be your most hardcore soldiers. They should be kept away from the levers of power at all costs. And we built a broken system. Now, this is probably uh, things, uh, one of the statements I'm probably most known for my, you know, days at the center of power being a C-level executive and a multi-billion dollar multinational company working in the White House, CEO of a mid-sized publicly traded company working on Wall Street, I'd say 10% of C-level executives at the larger companies in America are sociopaths and 30% in finance. And it's probably higher than that, maybe in Hollywood. I don't know. Never spend any time in Hollywood. But if you look at what Hollywood seems like, it would seem like they're all sociopaths all the time. Well, uh, and Drive, right? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great movie, by the way, right? But anyway, the idea that even 1% of sociopaths have the levers of power. It's clearly broken. So got to have an operating system. It turns out there is an operating system. This sort of gets to your question about what do we kind of like. Chris Boehm, a anthropologist, also affiliated with that interesting institute, has a one of the very best must-read books called Hierarchy in the Forest. It really should have been titled Anti-Hierarchy in the Forest because he talks about how our forager ancestors, even though they have a hierarchical genome coming from chimps and bonobos, both of which are relatively hierarchical, chimp, chimpanzees, almost a bad satire of corporate America in terms of being viciously hierarchical, developed a social operating system that most forager people ran for hundreds of thousands of years where they did not tolerate the emergence of bosses, you know, of strong bosses. First, they would just ignore them if someone, you know, puffed themselves up and started telling people what to do, and then they'd laugh at them, right? And then they'd walk away from it. Sometimes they'd all walk away, just leave the person there, right? Then they'd exile them, and if they came back, they'd... And that was essentially how they dealt with bosses. And instead, and this is very Game B, rather than position-based leadership, I am the boss, Game B, like the foragers, is suggesting that we should have role-based leadership. So in you know a forager band, or it's a very early agriculturalist, if we're going to organize a hunt, then the person that's the best hunter organizes it, right? If we're going to go look for... Tubers, the woman who's the expert tuber finder, and it was almost always a woman who was the expert tuber finder, she organizes the hunt for tubers. If we're going to have a war, maybe we bring in Joe the sociopath and let him lead it, right? But he doesn't have absolute power only during the wartime. And if if he tries to keep his power after the war is done, when those wars for hunter-gatherer bands lasted 12 hours or three days or something, then... You know, we look, first we ignore him, then we laugh at him, uh, then we leave, and then we exile him, and if he comes back, we kill him, right? And so things like that are what we'd have in place within the membrane. In fact, uh, Jordan Hall and I have talked a bit. He's, you know, he, believe it or not, is a Harvard Law School graduate, even though he never practiced law. And he thinks a lot about legal systems and such. And one of the things we've come to a tentative conclusion on wouldn't say it's firm conclusion, but tentative conclusion, is that within the membrane of a so-called proto-B, somewhere like 150 to 300 people, Dunbar, a mid-level Dunbar number, perhaps the only judicial function would be exile, that people are either talked to, counseled, or expelled, right? And if they come back, you kill them. And that may be the only judiciary that you need in a, in the membrane of 150 people. Whoa, 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 hold on. Because when I had Tyson Young Caporta on Future Fossils, he and I had a, a lovely conversation about cancel culture. And 
you know, I think he and I agree that cancel culture is a phenomenon of this sort of human egalitarian exile dynamic operating on a scale at which people are, they have their fingers on the levers of other people's communities in a way that did not happen. Exactly. That's why it's only within the membrane of 150, right? How do you, how do we reconcile, if you're talking about like game B siphoning off of game A, how do you reconcile the need for this kind of regulatory dynamic with the fact of the, we are just, again, awash in this noosphere. Okay, well, you're not... Well, the technosphere. This is very important. Very, 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 very important. Is that uh, the... It goes back a little bit to another very important idea from Game B, which is we currently live in a world where what used to be provided by extended families and face-to-face communities, think of them small villages, that scale, which has been most of the last three or 4,000 years in the West, at least, have been replaced by governments and markets, which are cold, algorithmic entities. And they don't have any warmth. They don't have any humanity to them at all. We believe that's a giant mistake. It's unhuman. It doesn't do well for human well-being, etc. And so Game B, at least the Ruttian version thereof, and I think most Game B people, understand that we have to build from the bottom up in cells, of around 150, and that may consist of three cells of 50, which might each consist of three cells of 15. But anyway, 150, it seems to be a magic number, the Dunbar number. I had Dunbar on my podcast in August. It was one of the very best episodes I ever did. So if you're interested, check out what he had to say. His most recent book is really good, which I read for that podcast. And so within that membrane, you have a high human fidelity set of relationships. These are like your extended family. These are like the village in the mountains where your people have been living for generations. But, of course, they're neither. They're neither an extended family nor a village where people are living for generations. But they're a synthesized replacement for that. And so people aren't going to cancel you just like you don't cancel your uncle at Thanksgiving because he has politically politically incorrect views on uh, pronouns or some damn thing. And you're only going to exile your uncle for something really, really bad, right? And so there'll be a high level of local tolerance for eccentricity within the bubble, just like there was in the face, face-to-face community. I'm actually very fortunate. I live in an extremely rural area where the towns are tiny, the county seat, the biggest... Uh, uh, town in our county, 150 people. And, and so we still have a lot of that face-to-face community. And what's the result is lots of interestingly eccentric people. And so I would expect that if you have this high human interlinking, and, and, and I would expect many proto-bees will take meals in common, will socialize at a, at a high level. Conviviality is a very important game bee value. Singing and dancing and drinking and making music, doing ritual, mental uh, psychotechnologies might include psychedelics. Uh-oh. But, you know, building that kind of strong links community at the level of 150 is really, really important because things something like something stupid like cancel culture ain't going to happen in that context. And further, you're rather immune to cancel culture and the wider side of things. Two fucks with some jackasses on 
Twitter say. I have my community. All my human well-being is in my little cell here. And then, and then of course, each cell has its protocols to work with the other cells. And, and oh, by the way, this is to your exit question. Very key voice and exit are two, two very, very, very important values. Max Borders has written some very good things about voice and exit. And I talk to Max all the time. Just talked to him the other day. And uh, one of the things we strongly believe is that proto-Bs, this bottom membrane, will be quite variable. They're, they're not going to be at all the same. You know, as I say, uh, I can imagine proto-Bs that look like, let's say, the dimension of management of human sexuality, kind of look like uh, a Victorian middle-class town on one side and a mad sex cult on the other. Both could call themselves Game B. And they may have local rules, one that says whatever. You know, but that could be quite different in those dimensions. And people can move from one proto B to another. And part of growing up as a B may well be to go on a two or three year tour of various proto Bs when you're 16 or 17 or 18 to figure out where's the right place for you. And you find the one that resonates with you and, and they, and they resonate with you back. That's the other important thing. These membranes keep things in and keep things out, but they're semi permeable. And so people can come to be tourists and then maybe they can spend the summer working on the farm and then and they can come back for uh, you know a good pagan holiday, and then they can say, "Hey, I want to be part of this proto B." And the other part of the proto B says, "Well, we'd like to have you. Uh, why don't you come on for a one year trial?" And then once uh, the person has you know been there for a year, maybe they get then get accepted into the proto B, and, and that's where they decide to live. And if they get tired of it, maybe they move to another proto B, do the same thing again. So that, this I think immunizes us at two levels against cancel culture. One is you know, cancel culture doesn't exist at the face-to-face community level, right? Worst case, you have a fist fight, and then you're best friends again afterwards. And if if most of your human value is within uh, this community where cancel culture doesn't exist, then you don't give a fuck about it, right? I don't give two shits what anybody says about me on, fa- on Twitter, and I think bees will be like that. Okay, so... Uh, wow, so much there. Okay, first of all... I guess this kind of presupposes that we're going to be able to shift the balance from the virtual back to the physical. And, and you know, like Nathan Waters, who I have had on the show, was just urging people to evacuate cities in the next few years because of the the, the pandemic and, and this kind of thing. Well, I'll say for another reason, which is that they're making us psychotic. We were not designed to live in cities. You know, I frankly, enjoy some of the fun parts of cities. And, you know, I even go to New York from time to time. But I feel like a uh, anthropologist visiting a uh, remote tribe in the Amazonia, when I do, uh, people in New York are fucking nuts. I mean, you know, they don't talk, they don't know their neighbors. They live in an apartment building, literally don't know the person who lives next door to them, even though they've lived there for 15 years. And when they're in the subway, they're looking at their feet. They used to look at their feet. Now they look at their phones. How can you be shoulder to shoulder with people and not be chatting them up? You know, that's not human. That's nuts. And so I think that big cities should just go away personally. And I don't think they're necessary anymore. And that I do believe that people should evacuate the cities and should live in balance with nature in small groups. And the, some, some of the groups will cluster into towns ish, but the, you'll still have your membrane, uh, cell of 150, but maybe you have 20 of those that are, that are a town of 3000, right? But we don't need New York cities. We don't need Shanghai's. They, they are, uh, inertial systems. They still have a lot of velocity and momentum, but I, I would, too bad I'm not going to be around to collect on it. I would make a bet 
that the percentage of humans living in mega cities a hundred years from now will be a much smaller percentage of mankind than there are now. Well, in, in that wager, you are standing aligned with William Irwin Thompson, former cultural historian of MIT, who made the point that he felt that what we were witnessing was in the emergence of a planetary culture that everything was just going to fall apart and that people were going to retreat back into the village scale. And he was calling that shot in the seventies. I definitely have to read this stuff. This sounds right up, right up our alley. Cause I will say uh, there are definitely some game B people that think, we all doomed and, uh, it's going to collapse. One fairly famous gang B person actually gave a date, right? And I said, nah, these are high order complex systems, stochastic. We can't call our shots. All we can say roughly is that something's probably going to happen, but hard to say when it could happen tomorrow morning. It might be a hundred years and it might not happen at all. And so I am not a hundred percent collapsitarian. On the other hand, I say there's a significant enough chance of collapse that it's wise to be prepared. And there will certainly be major, major shocks to our social, political, economic systems way more than we've seen in the 20th century. Whether that leads to collapse or not, I don't know. But at least the opportunity, <laughs> I'll say that. And I think that the that the, the best way to do that is to build, par- at least in part and in extremis, fully self-reliant land-based communities that are optimized around human well-being, but are network with each other. And this is back to the question about who we were like from the past is that while at some level we're a bit like the forager people and that we have our local social operating system to keep the power away from the sociopaths, we're not like them because we are, we, we do have the capacity for networking. You know, we understand we have human institutions for networking. We have technical institutions for networking and we will be developing the human tools for uh, self-organization, self-management, and doing things in a radically decentralized fashion, but yet still do them. You know, how do you do things like the uh, long baseline gravity experiments that detected gravity waves that involved people in Italy and United States and Australia for 30 years working together, right? Game B still wants to be able to do those things, but we don't want them, you know, being done top down from the National Science Foundation. Instead, we'd want those projects to collect funding by emergent fund raising from everybody and self-organize through processes, which we don't know how they work yet, but things like holacracy and sociocracy may be pointing in the right direction so that we actually can run projects at that scale in a bottom-up self-organizing fashion because we have the tools that our hunter-gatherer friends didn't. Wow. Okay. So first of all, this is a whole separate conversation, but I want to flag this for later with you, Jim, that something I've been talking about nonstop for months, like literally every day for months now, has been the idea of a science DAO that here's the problem, right? Even if you have unrestricted donations supporting research and the researchers are free to do whatever they want, then you're still beholden to courting those donors. And so there are sociopolitical buffer walls that are going to prevent the research from ever asking specific questions, such as questions explored by Eric Wargo on the show. I don't know if you know Eric Wargo's stuff. No. He wrote the book Time Loops. 
But he's made what I consider a fairly solid case drawing on people like John Wheeler that information does actually move retrocausally in time and that he's got a, a, a strong like information theoretic argument for this and he, he embeds it in an evolutionary argument and he explains how the life evolves by time binding its own future survival or reward states in this quantum function. And so you never, time is never going backwards. Information is always flowing forwards. You keep entropy and everything, but you are somehow still able to also address this entire swath of bizarre phenomena, such as precognitive dreams primarily pre- precognitive dreams as he explores in uh, J.W. Dunn's experiment with time serialism, you know, from the 1930s. I don't know if you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. but oh my God. I mean, this was, this is a, a radical work of rigorous transgressive empiricism that this guy did. He was a, a royal aviator in the 1930s who, who started gathering people's dreams. And this was a huge influence on the development of 20th century thought, actually, you know, I mean, a lot of people were following Dunn, but at at any rate, the point is that we can't talk about this stuff now in the, in the academy. Well, yeah. 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 So, so, but I give you a million examples of things you can't talk about in the academy. And then, and even the, even if you want to talk about them, you can't build a career around them. Right. And a model, here's, here's just a very, and again, this, these, these are just uh, crayon cartoons. So don't take them too seriously, but a, a, a general solution that we find interesting in game B space, it actually came from our pre game B work with the emancipation party is the idea of colors of money. The first one we came up with was political money. Instead of letting corporations and rich people dominate the battlefield of politics, if they're going to have politics. And I think as we learn more about Game B, we don't necessarily even have to have politics of the sort that we have. But let's say we, let's say in the interim period still have it. Every citizen might get a hundred dollars a year of political money that can only be spent for political campaigns or lobbying. And by the way, that's the only money that can be spent for political campaigns and lobbying. So we still have some of the benefits of money that it's partial, that it's not time synchronized like elections, but we get rid of the bad parts of money, which are People with lots of money have more influence than people with little bits of money. So you get the good stuff from money in politics and get rid of the bad. The same could be done in science. You know, let's suppose that we have science money. Jordan Hall has done a lot of work on innovation money, which is closely related. But let's call it science money. Every every citizen gets, well, what's the, you know, between NSF, blah, blah. so let's say $200 a year for science money. And this is very important. It's proxyable. So you can proxy your money to somebody else, but this money can only be used for science. And so let's say you're, you know, your average Joe doesn't know much about science, but knows somebody who, who probably knows more than they do. They could proxy their $200 to that person in whole or in part. And that person could then proxy it to somebody else. And, you know, I might proxy, you know, some little piece of, let's say I get, I'm an aggregator and I've got a million dollars of science money. I might allocate it out to things that I think are interesting and important. And I think if you have proxyable science money, there is a fair chance that it will self-organize in a way to do more of the right stuff than, than our current really bizarre and really rigid structures of of science finance are doing. And yet it would also allow us to socially to decide how much punch we want to put behind science. Is it $200 per person? Is it $100? Is it $500? And that's something that should be democratically ascertained. And so I think there's at least a, a, a crayon drawing of one potential way to let science funding self-organize. 
And those kinds of approaches are deeply game B. So, okay, so that brings us back to uh, Benjamin Taylor's question, which is where do you see people putting these kinds of practices into operation? And, I mean, or do we see them happening anywhere? Well, I'll tell you little baby versions, Patreon and Substack, right? I probably lay out $200 a month in Patreon and Substack bequests, right? To essentially support, and that's probably spread over 25 or 25, 20, 20, 25 people. And, you know, that's just a very nascent kind of thing that is, but it's, but it's happening. Substack is actually a really important phenomenon. Right, where some of the very best journalists have bailed on blue church mainstream media and have put up their own shingle supported by Substack and are, some of them are doing very well financially and are, are able to be rigorous independent voices and make a living doing it outside the institutional structures of the, the horrific rigid mainstream media. And I think this is a very interesting game B-ish. You know, we had nothing to do with it, you know, but it just happened, right? And I think it's a very interesting found experiment. And I now... Shout out to Eric P. Hole, Eric Hole, who, I don't know if you know, he worked on the IIT with Tononi. Oh, okay. Eric, and he wrote the, the the science fiction novel, The Revelations. I've, I've been meaning to get him on the show for a while now. I've, I've been remiss in this regard. But Eric is somebody who graduated from what you call blue church <laughs> media into uh substack and was actually like featured on substack last year. And, and yeah, it's somebody I would recommend you checking out. That sounds interesting. In fact, I'm going to just for fun, I'm going to log on to my substack and read off some of the, that's a valid email address. What the fuck is wrong with you? This is all right. Log in. Just give you a sense of some of the people who I read on Substack. So this is, so this is a very, how, how do I even find my own publications? I usually just read it in email. So I seldom go to Substack. My publications. Oh, here we go. Quite a few of them. Yeah. Like the, God, I had more than I thought I did. Damn. Maybe it's, the number is probably more than $200 a month. Holy shit. Like a lot of them are free. Yeah. The paid ones is only about 20, but you know, it's a good one. The Bismarck Briefs, that's a really good one. Astral Codex 10. The Convivial Society isn't doing that much at the moment. The Dispatch is good. Let's see. Ribbon Farm Studio, there's a real good one. Slow Boring, extremely good. Matt Taibbi, they have names that are kind of weird. They actually focused on who the writers were. I would remember them better. But anyway, oh, The Daily Dish, that's a real good one. And yeah, so... Anyway, yeah, this so this is a exemplar in our current world of something that is game B-ish, that people can vote with some form of token to support creators that are independent of these giant ossified top-down bureaucracies. So I'd much rather have a writer that is supported by individual contributors than manage to run the gauntlet and get hired by the New York Times, for instance. Okay, so there's there's this other piece of it, which is, you know, in, in your discussion of referencing foragers, hunter-gatherer communities, I don't know if you listen to Chris Ryan's podcast, Tangentially Speaking. I don't listen to any podcasts. I hate podcasts. Oh, I've never listened. 
I've never listened to a podcast in my life, not one. Really? Oh, well, <laughs> I hope to change your tune, sir. Because- uh, I'll tell you even this. When I have a guest uh, who's mostly done their work on podcasts, I have their podcast transcribed. Okay, well, Chris Ryan has a book that you can read called Civilized to Death. He and I had a conversation about it recently on the show. And I think it stands up there with David Graeber and David Wengrow's recent book as well, because there, I mean, it, it's essentially a criticism of civilization and progress looking at the situational inevitability of certain kinds of human behavior in the context of foraging versus the context of sedentary agricultural society. And Chris draws on the research showing that the history of agriculture was kind of a snowballing mistake. You know, it was them making the best of a bad situation. Yeah. Graber and when uh, the other dude, uh, I just finished reading their book. They yeah. make a similar case, but, but they make it, they don't make it strong. It just sort of, just sort of happened. You know, it just. Right. Uh, right. That it's, it's like, well, okay, things were going really well for a while. And then in the lean years, you have to start digging trenches from the river to the trees. And then yeah. from there, you know, one thing leads to another. And yeah. suddenly here we are in 2022 talking about the goddamn liminal web. Yeah. You know, and so this is, this is the thing, right? Which is, and I, we, we kind of danced around this, glanced off of this earlier, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, if you're talking about village life, if you're talking about the 150 people, you're talking about uh, CompuServe's special interest groups, there's like, there's a th- an irreducible thing about human beings that won't go away, which is the affinity group. And, and, and this is true even, you know, even in a place-based tribal society. So as I did in, in conversation with Tyson Yunkaporta, I'm going to invoke William Irwin Thompson's distinction here between the sanguinal polity that is organized primarily through blood relations, the mm-hmm. geographic polity organized primarily through geographic association, and the noetic polity organized in the way of an affinity group. And the question for me is, okay, you and I have both been identified on this Joe Lightfoot's uh, taxonomy interrelated things. But, you know, and and he's saying based on his, what sounded to me like when he was in conversation with Tyson Yung Caporta about it, it sounded to me like, you know, he came up with this whole thing because he was trying to reconcile the time that he'd spent in Chiang Mai seeing village life firsthand, seeing ritual culture, seeing what it meant to have a place-based community and spirituality and then like how do you square the circle with the internet and so here we are and you know you and i did not choose to be in the liminal web and yet people are now taking this football and running way the hell down the field with it you know shout out to jared lucas and his recent presentation at the stoa where he's like trying to use the web three to come up with a way to make this a living wage kind of thing, you know, like a money printer for people that are doing knowledge work in this domain. But I mean, damn it, you know, at the same time, it's also, there are people out there, Naveen Stritsrav asking me, you know, like, well, what, how is this not just you getting, you know, co-opted by 
this thing? And, and how is this not just the, the intellectual dark web rebranding itself to look cool, young and hip, you know? And it's like, I mean, and the, the fact is, frankly, I mean, it's like what Nora Bateson and Tyson Yunkaporta are like the only woman and person of color on this entire map. Something like that. It's insane. So, I mean, we have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd love to know what your your thoughts are on that. Well, I'm neither young, cool, or what was the third one? Hip. So, I'm none of them things. Uh, and don't want to be. And in fact, reject all... Well, actually, nothing wrong with being young. Young is good. But the other ones, fuck all that shit, right? So, yeah. Who knows whether the liminal web will will last uh, more than uh, six weeks. Be a six-week wonder. Uh, it's not a village, yeah, it's not. Oh, uh, and this is a definition. This, yeah, oh, and this is very important. I mean, uh, we, you know, I, 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 let's get all the way back to the fundamentals of game B, at least the Ruttian version of them. And I, but I think most people would agree with these is that honesty and good faith is the base upon which we build. Next is self-organization. So, you know, let's look at, you know, inside the bubble of 150 people. You know, we learned some things from foragers, but it's 21st century. We learned some things from Forrest Landry also. That's somebody you should have on your show if you haven't. Um, happy to hook you up if you don't know him. But here's the next one. Network oriented. We have always said that as per John Holland, we have membranes, but we also have protocols, right? So we're not giving up on the internet. We're not giving up on virtual reality and AR, but we're going to use it discerningly and intelligently to do the things that we really want to do rather than get sucked into things that somebody else wants us to do. So, you know, if we're going to build the long baseline gravity wave detector over 30 years across three continents, we're going to do it on the network probably. And so that's important. And then decentralized. And again, decentralized means that protocols and membranes interoperate to produce patterns that could do actual work at scale. And then medicine stable, which means that this whole damn thing has to have some governors and and rules that allow it to meta-stable, kind of go like this, but maintain its coherence for a long period of time. Uh, I like to say for at least a few hundred years. I can't predict out any further than that. So we're, you know, the idea that we're only talking about village lives is wrong. We're talking about village life as very important and has to be established for our human well-being. But we've always said from the beginning, self-organized, network-oriented, decentralized tasks at arbitrary scale up to planetary. I still want to go to the stars, goddammit. But we're going to do it from our villages. Well, now, wait a minute, because Charles Strauss has written some excellent science fiction about the bottom-up space industry. I don't know if you read Rapture of the Nerds with Cory Doctorow or Accelerando. But oh, I read Accelerando. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, and then also Wireless. He he had a story in his his short story compendium about this, where this issue of things just running completely rampant and the garage space industry phenomenon. And then you get. I mean, how is that not going to result in something like Wally? Where, you know, you look at the earth and it's just like completely enshrouded by this mist of space trash. How do you regulate airspace? If like, what the fuck? That's going to be a difficult question. Don't have the answer to it, but certainly one we had to deal with, right? Space junk. I mean, uh, there, uh, there's other science fiction stories that talk about 
oops, we didn't pay attention to it. We lost our future in space because we can't take off anymore because there's too much space junk, right? Could happen. That's a, a coordination problem at the planetary scale, which is not entirely obvious how we solve, just like another one, global warming. It's exactly the same thing. Humans were not designed, nor is our hyperbolic discounting appropriate for self-organizing to solve long-term global scale problems, but we, we got to find a way to do it. Above my pay grade, though, but I'll keep my eye out for solutions. Well, thanks for at least accepting that you, I mean, thanks for not having an answer, I guess. One of the things I'm trying to encourage is the concept of the hero's answer. The hero's answer is, I don't know. It takes some stones to say, I don't know, in our current world. And I'm strongly trying to model that myself, encouraging other people. The hero's answer, I don't know. So do you know, basically, how we might reconcile this place-based, face-to-face kind of community with whatever it is that you and I share, this thing. Yeah, I'm not, if I'm living in a proto-B, I expect I'll do like I'm currently doing, which is to do 15 hours a week of Zooms, right? Why not? And then hopefully VR at some point when, you know, it's getting almost good enough. It probably will be soon. Why not? But when I take off my glasses and go out and hang out with my friends and work in the fields a little bit and have dinner together, drink beer and sing and carouse and set off fireworks and ride around on uh, dirt bikes or whatever, that will be a big part of my life as it still is. I mean, I, I'll give my wife a lot credit for this. I never got sucked into the 7 by 24 lifestyle. And I tell young entrepreneurs, oh, well, what are your secrets to your success? I say, How many times do you think I, days do you think I spent in the office during my uh, business career on weekends? And they, you know, 4,000. I'd say, nope, the answer is 30, about one day a year. And I just didn't do it. Uh, it was kind of a deal I came up with my wife that I worked like hard five days a week, but I didn't work on a weekend in, you know, most dire of emergencies. And I see us, you know, getting to a point in the game B world where, you know, we work 20 hours a week and then the rest Denver of our just did the four day, six hour yep, week. Exactly. And 34 year old prime minister. Exactly. Right. And we can do that up 20, yeah, uh, 24 hours a week. Sure, we can do it. Particularly in this, of course, now let's get to, to the to the very key question that that I think will make Game B sound like less like bullshit. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe make it sound more like bullshit. I don't know. But uh, this is also near the core of Game B-ness and something that we botched miserably in the first version of Game B. The 2013 version. In fact, there's a very interesting uh, documentary film made by Rebel Wisdom on the Early history of Game B, David Fuller basically interviewing me and Brett Weinstein, who were both in that first posse. And uh, we talked about how we failed. That's one of the things we talked about. Talked about also all the good ideas we came up with. But the key failure mode and and the final synthesis of that, I think, is what I believe makes Game B possible and not just bullshit, which was there was a big argument in the Game B space. This is when we had less than 100 people, 65, I think. Between those who believed in personal change first versus institutional change first. And the arguments got ugly and the community just blew up over this. And we all just said, we're not, we don't want to have these stupid fights. And so we, we formally put game B into spore mode at the end of 2013. Said, okay, we've accomplished a fair bit. We're no longer being productive. 
let's all take what we have and just go out into the world and maybe someday the spores will sprout again. It turned out they did a few years later, which is very interesting and curious. But that turned out to be, we were, in retrospect, as I say in the, in the film, it's amazing how stupid we were to have fallen into that trap. Because there's an obvious answer. And I think this is the answer that makes game B possible, which is that the human capacity and the institutional designs have to co-evolve with each other. The institutions that you can build at any given time are dependent upon the humans that you have to work with. Very few humans, only a few of us oddballs, are able to go contrary to the social signals that we receive. And so, you know, we talked earlier about psychological attributes. I took the ocean protocol test, you know, the five-part personality model. And not to my surprise, I found myself in the 99th percentile disagreeable and the 100th percentile anti-neurotic, right? Which means that I don't give a fuck what you think, basically. And, you know, few of us are out there at the fringe. Most people need to resonate with their social institutions. And so if the social institutions aren't supporting the personal change, they don't stick. And the institutions you can build are dependent upon the personal capabilities that have been developed over time. So the road to game B is like this, is the two of them co-evolving and getting better and better. As the people get better, we can build better institutions. Better institutions help people get better. And that's actually the answer right there. Well, shit, Jim. Okay, so I feel like there's a lot left on the table, but seeing as we've been at this for two hours without a potty break, I want to invite you to do the thing that I invite every person I bring on this podcast to do, which is... Again, to place yourself in the thought experiment that you are in conversation with the distant future, with an unimaginable other, human, non-human, who hell knows? Somebody is going to dig this up. And again, if Eric Wargo is right and we're in some sort of Minkowski block space-time in which the future already exists and is causally bound with us in some way, then they're present in the room in this conversation right now. My friend, the tea fairy says that she lives her life as though she's playing a reality TV show for the future, like that she's an ancestor and, you know, she's just racking up views, living the most amazing life that she can. And, and that's how she chooses to work through her day. And, and incidentally, you know, she's kind of a hero in Burning Man, which when you're talking about Game B, have you ever been to Burning Man? Hell no, I wouldn't go to that place. That's like the antithesis of vileness. Okay, cause, because I, I ask because, you know, when you're talking about this this sort of uh, room springa that you know you people go out and they'll like they'll go they'll go sift through all the bur- the different communities and they'll find the one that's theme camps that's what that is and, yeah, and well, so you know burning man is as game a as it could be uh in, in a way but you know there's another thing going on there no, yeah, but it is, it is an experiment it's an ex- it's a, a game b heresy i guess it's a game a heresy uh a game a heresy a proto game b thing i mean the fact that people can't agree about it i think suggests that it's- i almost went in 2004 but for some reason the project fell apart we were going to rent an rv and all that it would have been fun but i, I, I actually yeah. but but i was I, before, I wouldn't I want to say that now it's a good idea. Yeah, I, mean, I, I have no, years, I have absolutely no interest in going now. But in 2004, it would have been cool. 
Well, uh, in as much as it's the sort of physicalization of the internet and the sort of voluntary self-sorting association that you see among primate troops. Yeah. It does actually strike me that, you know, my wandering from theme camp to theme camp resembles that of a male chimpanzee. But so at any rate, no, if the future is present in the room right now, listening to us and possibly speaking back, Jim, what do you need to say to them? And what do you hope to hear back? Well, first I'm going to say my own intuitions about time is that that's probably wrong. I've become more and more convinced by the work of Lee Smolin and his collaborators that time is real and is much more naive than even most physicists think. But, but let's take your, 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 your toy assumption. I don't actually think there's a conflict with Lee's network time emergent thing here but anyway we'll, we'll talk I'll have to read this I'll have to read this yeah. other guy maybe have him on my show because I've had Lee on my show we've talked about time but anyway talk to the future and they might be able to do something which is dear future humanity is currently on a cusp where things could go really well or really badly and we are doing the best we can to sort it out but some clues would be helpful All right. Well, I think we can leave it there. Yeah, it's not a very brisk answer, but, you know, as a complexitarian, I don't believe you can predict the future very far. No, I don't think you can either. So so and, just some hints would be nice from the future, right? Yeah. And, and incidentally, you know, Eric's whole point is that because the – not his whole point, but one of the points he makes is that because the associative networks that form the basis of our pattern recognition are conditioned – then any information we receive from the future is misinterpreted. Of course, there's plenty of science fiction stories about that, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, so clues, yes, please. Yeah, cryptic, probably. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And one of the reasons why we have the arts, perhaps. Oh, yes. Okay. Like, thank you. Actually, we did, last thing, we did say that we were going to touch on this. How do you understand the role of the arts in all of this? I think the arts are a very important way of seeing. The human brain is a very complex and powerful mechanism. Still, it's no longer more powerful than all the computers on Earth, which was true as late as 15 years ago. But still, a human brain is still a lot more powerful than any computer on Earth. And it's not a computer. It's a network device that... Can be emulated computers, could be probably even replicated with other kinds of devices. By the way, it's this very, very, very interesting thing. And, and some of, a lot of what it does, it does with very hard to describe pattern matching and interaction of waves and, uh, the level of what's going on is just, is way more than we even are just, just beginning to understand. Now, it turns out that art, uh, has been something that's evolved with humans for a long time, at least 40,000 years ago, maybe a lot further. And it's a way of seeing that is non-symbolic, but yet is rich. And so I think that it is as important, potentially, as the work that's done in the symbolic realm. You know, let's think about the world that has descended from Athens as one example of sort of the very symbolic way of thinking about things. The art is another way of using this exceedingly powerful device called the human mind to project insights that are maybe just hints mostly, because that's an interesting thing about art. You know, it doesn't say do this, do this, do that, do this. It's 
here's a thing. And if the thing is really rich, it has an impact on you. It is a hint of something, but it's not uh, not specific, which so it's why art is so very important. Interesting. You know, given William Irwin Thompson's statement that I love, and I, I this is a, a common refrain on the show, that novelty enters culture first through the crazies, then the artists, then the savants, and then the pedants, placing science in the back half of yep. discovery, right? And then let's link that with Eric Wargo's work and what you just said about how so many of these things come up in science fiction. You know, why is, did science fiction create? It, again, created or discovered? Where are we getting the clues? Where are they coming from? I don't know. I don't know. This is... This it's, a big, is a, it's a big question. And uh, and again, I'll give the hero's answer. I don't know, right? The uh, This is an area, of course, that there's research going on in, but it's very early. And hopefully we'll know more later, but we don't know right now. And that's okay. And that's a fine place to end it, Jim. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've got an extraordinary list of citations to drop in the show notes for this call. This was super fun and it has precipitated in me the desire to follow up with you about an, a number of things that we've discussed today. And I hope that we find the time for that. Yeah. Enjoy the hell out of it. You know, there were times when I kind of got distracted and didn't say some things I wanted to say, but that was all right. The discussion was very fruitful and very interesting. Thanks for doing a great job of asking the questions and at least semi steering the conversation. It was, it was good. Awesome. Take care. Alrighty. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Reminder to stay tuned and subscribe for over the next few weeks. I'll be going deeper into these and related questions. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram. And uh, patrons can hop into the members-only Facebook group and Discord server. Holler if you have any questions and have a most excellent week.